Good morning. Today's passage comes from Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Scott. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all this morning on a rainy marathon Sunday day. I think I'm, this is the one time I'm glad I'm not running the marathon today. Um, if you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you are here. Uh, I do have one other announcement by the way, I'm very sorry about my voice. I've been doing a ton of speaking uh, the last 10 days, and it's catching up with me. And I know some are praying that my voice will go out before the end of the sermon, but um, uh, at anyway, I, I hope to make it through today, and then I think I'll be back on the upswing. So I'm sorry about the way my voice sounds. But uh, I wanted to also mention, uh, Caitlin covered some of the Bible studies. I uh, wanted to let you know, give you a little preview about what we're doing also on Wednesday nights which is just a general Bible study. Uh, the next two Wednesday nights, we're going to uh, finish uh, our study of 2 Corinthians. And then starting February 1st, we are going to do a four-week uh, topical study, but it's going to be on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
So if you've ever wanted a comprehensive, long study on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, come Wednesday night, starting um, um, February 1st. Uh, And normally the Bible studies are from 7 to 8, but because of the weight of the content of this and and how dense it is, uh, I'm sorry, normally the Bible studies are 7 to 7.45, but because of the weight and the density of the content of the um, spiritual gift study, we're going to go from 7 to 8. Uh, on some nights. And then on March 1st, uh, it's time for us to have another membership class. So if you know the natural rhythms uh, of the the church, you you know that three or four times a year we do a membership class on Wednesday night. So that'll be myself, Pastor Trey, and Pastor Tyler James. And we're going to do that over three weeks, the first three Wednesdays in March. That's also a little bit different. That goes from 6.30 to 8. And the reason it starts at 6.30 is because for the membership classes, we do serve dinner and we have child care. So uh, just give you an idea of what's, uh, what's happening in the next few weeks on, um, on Wednesday night. So let's dive into today. We're talking about essentially, I just, I couldn't come up with any more clever title, so it's the state of the church, okay? Um, we're going to talk about the church today and culture. Uh, over the last few years, I've been uh, just immersed in reading a variety of authors from a variety of backgrounds, so Christian authors, non-Christian authors, atheist atheist authors even, philosophers, uh, sociologists, uh, theologians, uh, just a wide variety, and the interesting thing is that pretty much they're all coming to the same conclusion about what's going on in the world And so as I read this stuff, and I come to the same conclusion before I read this stuff, I realize maybe I'm not as crazy as I think I am. And so uh, I thought maybe we ought to talk about it this morning. And I really pray and hope to bring something of value to you this morning, while also calling us to issues that we need to be properly aware of as the church. Now, I love this quote. It's just kind of a way to get started because it fits. This is from Aaron Daly. He's a pastor at Redemption uh, Alhambra. He says this, the Bible is not a rule book for life, but it is God's word pointing us to the importance and practice of wisdom. And so what we're trying to do is inculcate uh, wisdom today. But I want you to hang with me because I'm going to spend a lot of time giving as much background as possible in the time that we have in order to set up our mission as a church and then talk about the scripture passage that Scott read for us. And And I will just say, we don't often speak strongly on cultural issues But these issues are all around us and yet not well understood. And so, again, we just felt like it was time. And I just, you could pray for me in this respect, too. I really want to be pastoral today while also being quite direct. So there's there's going to be some tension there, perhaps. So in case you haven't noticed, uh, there's quite a battle going on. Uh, Any of you know who Alistair Begg is? Okay, that's really encouraging. Um, So my favorite Bible teacher and preacher uh, for 30 years was Tom Schrader, our founding pastor. And when Tom passed away four years, by the way, uh, Friday was his four-year anniversary of his passing. When he passed away four years ago, um, I'm kind of searching for somebody else who could be my favorite. Alistair Begg is, is now 
uh, my favorite. favorite. But uh, he's also in on this issue and talking about it. He's been speaking out, and I appreciate that because, in fact, him speaking out on it has cost him in some ways. Uh, I also just want to mention some of my resources. These are the primary resources of what we're going to talk about today, but there are many beyond this as well. But certainly Charles Taylor, the Catholic philosopher, Douglas Murray, the atheist, Nancy Piercy, who is a Christian ethicist and used to work with Charles Coulson, uh, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, who wrote the book Cynical Theories, which I think everybody in this room should read, uh, they're philosophers, and then uh, Carl Truman, of course, and you've heard me talking about Carl Truman ad nauseum for probably the last uh, 12 months, but there are others as well. So uh, Taylor, Charles Taylor and Carl Truman are very helpful here in defining what they would call the histories of the self, the histories of who we are over the, say, the last 2,500 years. So Historically and philosophically, there was first the political self. So this is the era of Aristotle and Plato, uh, and the idea that, that of the self then was, uh, that was taught mostly was selfless devotion to your community and to your city or to wherever you are living. Uh, then came the religious self. This was kind of the heyday, and this is the longest era of the self, the heyday of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and the idea there was devotion to God, which then should lead us to devotion to others and loving others. Then came the economic self, and that kind of happened uh, during the Industrial Revolution, the Renaissance, and the birth of scientific process. And, and during that time, there was a growing devotion to prosperity and individuality. So kind of moving away from an importance of, on the community but, and towards individuality, but just a little bit. Uh, and they, they started to embrace the notion that a rising tide raises everybody. Okay? Now, these first three that I just mentioned from about 400 B.C., to 1850 AD were, were all mostly outward and community focused. And admittedly, these categories, uh, even Taylor and Truman would say this, these categories are a bit oversimplified, but there is no denying the veracity and accuracy of this last one, today's self, the milieu in which you and I all live in today. It's the psychological self. This is a self that is turned totally and completely inwardly on us. And this self was mostly fathered by three men, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Sigmund Freud, and Karl Marx. Uh, and this has clearly led to the dominant political ethos in our world today, which is identity through sexuality and gender and your feelings. And now, we don't have time to explain all the ways these three men have laid the groundwork for the mess that we're in today. And by the way, there's an irony here. The irony is that uh, those who most vociferously support these cultural dogmas, they really have no idea that these are the men who have influenced their worldview. When you start to ask them, why have you come up with this position? Why do you think this? They have no way of saying, well, Rousseau and Freud and, and Marx, they, 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 they don't know. It's just in the water in the culture. But at any rate, there's no, there's no way to explain all the ways they've done this, but I'll give you a quick and simple rundown. So starting with Rousseau, he's the father of the notion that people are basically good and there's really no such thing as a sin nature in human beings. He says if there is sin, and that's a big if, if there is sin, it rises from the world and its systems, 
which I always push back at that point and say, well, the world and its systems, which ironically are instituted and managed by what? People. <laughs> People. Okay, so it's a terrible circle, logical circle that doesn't, that doesn't work. But he believes that if there are bad people who, who commit atrocities, it's through nurture and not nature. The Bible teaches something completely different, of course. And then along comes Sigmund Freud. He advanced Rousseau by taking the idea that all humans are basically good, and he just sexualized it. So everything about humanity is driven by, identified through, exemplified by, and because of our sexual nature and proclivities. And then come, along comes Marx, and he's kind of the finishing touch. God and economics have been used for centuries to oppress the weak, but Marx says there is no God, and so government has the final authority, and it's the government's job to make things fair and equitable, ironically, by seizing power and oppressing people. I added that editorial comment, by the way. And the key institutions that Marx, ins Marx insisted be done away with are the family and the church. The key institutions that Marx insists be done away with are the family and the church. In other words, Marx is the one who successfully began to politicize everything. Everything is now political. It's one reason why we can't watch a college football game or a major league baseball game or go to a Disney movie or watch TV shows without being hounded by messages about sexual, sexuality, sexual identity, and our feelings. So the psychological self, and, and here's the dogma. You and I are only fulfilled by the outer expression of who we feel like inside of us. And it is immoral and even evil to prohibit anyone from expressing outwardly what they feel inwardly. In fact, we're, we, are, we are called, we are required, we are commanded to champion others in the midst of this. And there will be scripture later that speaks to this. In other words, there's, there's no, any, anybody old enough to remember the saying, live and let live? Okay, that was like 60s and 70s. Okay, there, no more live and let live. That's not enough. You can't just live and let live. You have to actively champion and advocate for and, and encourage people to do this. And all of this is now controlled by the new cultural authority, which is known as emotional rationalism emotional rationalism. The term itself doesn't even make sense, but that's where we are today. Emotional rationalism. In other words, here's what emotional rationalism is. If I feel it, then it must be true and correct, and no one has the right to question it or disagree with it or argue against it, and if you do, you are a morally inferior being. So what now reigns is something known as the sovereignty of the individual or the primacy of expressive individualism, and all of this is manifested in the natural conclusion in what's, of what's known today as a therapeutic culture. A therapeutic culture means that everyone is, is affirmed in who they feel that they are, and what they feel is right and true, no matter what, and thus we have the, uh, the birth of something known as affirmation therapy. So no matter how self-destructive your feelings are, no matter how self-destructive your feelings are, I must affirm that they are true, and I must assist you in getting the encouragement, the counseling, the hormones, and the surgery that you believe you need in order to, for you to express on your outside 
what you feel you are on the inside, even though who you feel you are on the inside might change in a year or a month or even next week. Okay? Now, privately, I've had conversations with people in the healthcare field, privately. And I say that because they won't say this publicly. There's one who will say it publicly, and it's gotten him into a tremendous amount of trouble. But privately, they will say this. You know the Hippocratic Oath? The oath that healthcare professionals take, where they state that they will do no harm? They're saying that's been completely thrown out the window now. Completely thrown. They'll take the oath, but they don't. They don't practice it anymore. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say this. Just because a thought enters your mind, it doesn't mean that it must or should be expressed. Any notion of that discipline is now gone. In fact, the world is telling us that it is unhealthy to engage in the discipline of self-denial. It is unhealthy to engage in the discipline of self-denial. It's unhealthy to refrain from doing things to ourselves that will destroy us. That's unhealthy. So, more specifically, here are some of the results we now live with. Many, for instance, many public school systems are no longer about the discipline of academics, but rather the application of affirmation and therapy. And children are sexualized. Children are sexualized as early as four years old. And parents have no right to object, for parents do not know what's best for their children. Only the educators know what's best for your child. And how this shakes out is this. We talked a little bit last week about victimhood. Happiness and, victim, uh, and victimhood are now the highest virtues in our world. And happiness can only be achieved by living out every sexual desire, fantasy, and identity that we feel no matter what, and everyone else must not merely tolerate it, but affirm it and encourage it. So think about this. Just, just consider this. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God gave humans dominion. He gave humans trust and stewardship over all of creation. That was a great gift to us. And then our heads, the Adam and Eve in the garden, they rebelled against God and gave in to sin. And so now sin has dominion. Sin has stewardship and trust over us. That's a problem. Isaiah said it this way in chapter 5. Woe to those who call what is good evil and who call what is evil good. And understand, this is not just a curse, but it's a prophecy because it's, it's prophetic because that's the milieu that we live in today. Uh, one more thing before I talk about the mission of the church and then some Bible out of Romans chapter 1. Um, a little bit of personal experience involved in this, but hang with me on this. Uh, think about the incremental nature of the, of the abortion issue uh, over the last five, six decades. Okay, I remember when abortion first came online and the idea was, listen, it's just a first trimester thing, just, just the first nine to 12 weeks and then maybe 15 weeks. And then sort of out of nowhere, after a couple of decades, it was six months. And now today, whenever somebody talks about abortion, it is just assumed that it is up to nine months, that it's partial birth abortion. Now, some of you are like, okay, so we're kind of at the end of the rope. Nope, hold on. What is now being championed 
is up to two years old. Now, I know some of you are looking at me right now going, this is insane, he's off his rocker. No, I'm not. There's a guy named Peter Singer. He's a, he's a respected bioethicist at Princeton University. Here's what he's been asserting for the last several years, and it's gaining momentum. He asserts that there is a difference between a human and a person. An infant may be human, but an infant is not a person until they have agency and self-understanding. And that doesn't occur until around two years old. And yet, and yet, think about this now, a four-year-old, we are told, can definitively understand and decide that they are a gender that they, that in which they are trapped in the wrong body and we must begin gender-affirming therapy for them at four years old. What's going on between two years old and four years old? I'd like to know the answer to that question. I'll answer it a little bit later. Now, I also remember the incremental nature in the 1990s of the same-sex marriage debate. Uh, people would say, same-sex, people would say, we, we just, listen, we... We can't help ourselves. Please understand. Sympathize with us. We just want to get married. Just let us get married. Live and let live and, and, and leave us alone. Be tolerant. Let us live our lives. And my response to that is, okay, yes, I understand. I, I, I fully understand that. I have different proclivities also. But, so I understand the idea of having desires that are against um, what God would say is an ordered and natural world. I understand that. But here's the problem with that. It is, and I said the words, okay, it is a slippery slope, okay? Because that just leads to the next thing, and then it leads to the next thing. And so I would say what will, what will happen as a result of that is something called NAMBLA will eventually be legitimized and normalized. Now, some of you are sitting there going, I have no idea what NAMBLA is. Well, it's been legitimized and normalized now. You should probably know about it. It was started in 1978. Here's what NAMBLA stands for. North American Man-Boy Love Association. The idea that an adult male can have sex with a minor male and that it's okay. That started in 1978. It grew through the 90s and the 2000s, and now it's... It's fairly mainstream, as a matter of fact. But when I said this, the slippery slope and NAMBLA, they, I got absolutely slammed for this. Oh, you're crazy. Nobody's going to go down that path. That's, no, nobody. No, we know where to stop. We know, we know how to stop this stuff. That's just, that's just crazy. But it's happened. It's known as MAPS, M-A-P, Minor Attracted Persons. And this has been normalized now. Here's the dogma. We should not chastise or punish these people, people who are minor attracted, but rather affirm and embrace and understand them. So here you go. I just have a question. It's just a question. I'm not giving you a position. I'm just asking a question. I work with a ton of sex offenders in the prisons. If this is your dogmatic biological, psychological, physiological, sociological, and philosophical stance that this minor attracted persons is something we should tolerate. If that's true, do we now release all sex offenders from prison? The logic follows. Here's another question, and I posed this a little earlier. I'd like somebody to explain to me how a two-year-old child has no rights and no agency and we can, quote, abort them. 
but a child of four years has the capacity and the wisdom to decide that they are in the wrong body and not one adult parent or healthcare professional can question it. Well, here's why. We now live in a world in a culture where logic, reason, and common sense just don't make a bit of difference anymore. It's because of emotional rationalism that people are not only allowed but encouraged to hold two completely divergent and contradictory truths and hold them both as thoroughgoing reality. In other words, we live in a post-cognitive dissonance world. Leon Fessinger would be very upset about that. Furthermore, if that's true, that a four-year-old can decide that they are in the wrong body and begin the transitioning process, what is to stop them from making the decision to have sex with an adult? Don't fool yourself, that's already here. And consider this, consider this. In August 2022, Boston Children's Hospital, a partner and part of Harvard University, put out a video in which pediatricians in their hospital claimed that a child knows in their womb if they are transgender. A child knows in their womb already if they are the wrong gender. And yet we can abort fetuses because they're not persons, but these fetuses know whether or not they're transgender. See how it makes no sense? But we just have to accept it. This isn't simply a morally unjustified position. I think it's insanity, but I guarantee you I'll catch heck for that. And understand, the church, not, not all churches, I understand that, but certainly this church, Redemption Church, Arizona, is the last and only stand for not just biblical truth and righteous ethics, but also for sanity. And here, the last thing before we get into our mission, uh, this is outlined in Truman's book, and I found it really helpful. And, and it's the strategy that the culture has used for the last 50 or 60 years, and it has worked. Uh, it's the idea of sympathize, normalize, demonize. So I, I've been through this. I'm old enough to be through this. Those of you who are younger, who think you know everything already, listen, I've been through this. I have experienced this. I remember in the 60s and 70s and part of the 80s when it was just, hey, just, just feel bad for us. Just, just live and let, 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 us, let us alone. Let us be who we want to be. All that. Just, we just want to live our lives. You live your lives. That's sympathize. Then normalize, okay? Hollywood, movies, TV, everything. I remember when AIDS became a thing, right when it first became a thing in the 1980s, I was stunned at how fast the government and the culture wanted to normalize AIDS. Oh, everybody gets it, and it's, it's okay. So we're just going to have to live with it, okay? So then we normalize. That's the 80s, 90s, and, and uh, 2000s, and now demonize. Anybody who doesn't agree with any of this, you're just simply demonized. You're the enemy. You're morally inferior. You're evil. That's the 2010s and now. So here we go. The church has really only two possible responses in light of the fact that we can't logically, rationally, or reasonably argue against emotional rationalism and because of the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who must open eyes, minds, and hearts in order to see genuine truth and wisdom, here's the first thing that we need to do. Number one, we need to stand firm on and teach unapologetically gospel-centered biblical doctrine. And that's not what you think the Bible says or should say or what you've heard that the Bible says, but what it actually says. And I know, I can already hear the objections, but if we do that, which we've been doing, by the way, for years. But if we do that, people won't like us. 
ah, they already don't. Uh, if we do that, we won't convince anyone. Not our job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. If we do that, it'll be offensive. Well, maybe, but here you go. We're not doing it for them. We're doing it for the people in the church. Now, hear me. It's not that we won't evangelize. We will. In fact, evangelism is more important now than ever before. Jesus is the true answer for the discontent that we all live in, whatever that discontent is. But it's even more important that those in the church, those in Christ, put on the armor of God. And a big part of putting on the armor of God is solid, gospel-centered, biblical doctrine. And as a pastor of a New Testament church, that's my calling from God. And when a church's priority is not to offend anyone, their members will become soft and malleable. When a church's priority is not to offend anybody, the members of that church become soft and malleable. And that's a danger to all of us. And here again, hear this. It's not that God, does, God doesn't love those who have succumbed to this way of thinking. He loves them. I love them too. But it's also not loving to stand by and not object to that which is clearly false and self-destructive. And there's no way I could ever be accused of loving this congregation if I didn't take this stand. We need to remember what Jeremiah says in the Old Testament. The voice of God almost always comes under condemnation from people. Here's the second thing. The church must have and teach an unashamedly high view of the human body because God has an unashamedly high view of the human body. And that's where we see, we see both of these truths about doctrine and the, the human body in this passage that Scott read for us. I'm going to reread it and spend just a few minutes unpacking it a bit. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made, that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their way of thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their own heart, hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, strife, murder, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Verse 32, the capstone. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
So clearly in this passage, we see the importance of both doctrine or what you might call objective truth. Objective truth is that truth which is absolutely true, but it's outside of us. You and I do not manufacture truth. Truth comes from God. So we see the importance of truth, doctrine, and a high view of the body in this passage. And the key verses are the verses that set it up, 18 through 23. So they'll be up on the screen for you to see. So first of all, uh, God is going to reveal his wrath because people uh, unrighteously suppress the truth. Now, the Greek there that describes suppressing the truth is a picture of if you've ever been to the beach and you have a big beach ball and you're out in the water and you try to hold the beach ball under the water, maybe you can get it under there for a, a few seconds. But what happens ultimately? Ultimately, the ball is going to come up. You cannot suppress objective God truth forever. Eventually, you will have to deal with it. I will have to deal with it. But that idea of suppressing the truth is we're just doing everything we can to hold it down. It's, it's kind of like that game whack-a-mole where you can never really quite get all... The, God's truth just keeps popping up because it's evident in everything that he has created. Verses 18 and 19. Creation demands a creator. A clock demands a clockmaker. And so verse 20, he says, no one has an excuse. I, won't, I don't know, or I didn't know, is not going to cut it with God, especially since he has made it plain to us. Just look around. Verses 21 and uh, 22, our rebellion in sin is not passive, it's active. And then verse 23, when we turn from God and from truth, we become idolaters. We worship false gods because you and I will always worship and serve something. We were created, we were made to worship and serve. So something is going to be worshipped and served in our life. The first commandment, God says, have no other gods before me. And if you do that, if you violate that commandment, it leads to violating all the other commandments. So this is Alistair Begg's line. He says this, immorality is the evidence of idolatry. Immorality is the evidence of worshiping false gods. So watch how that plays out. Verse 24, we dishonor our bodies when we worship false gods. When we embrace sin and mock biblical virtue, we, we actually dishonor our bodies. When we willingly and enthusiastically exchange God's truth for the lies and foolishness of this world. And then verse 26, God is a God of order. He's, he's a God of order who created an ordered or what you might call a natural world. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And then we humans disordered the world, made it unnatural with our sin, and, and then then that becomes so that our passions also become unnatural. The idea that we should never check our passions and desires, that we should never think about them, that we should never carry every thought captive to Christ, gone in today's world. But that's what we are called to do as Christ followers who believe that the Bible teaches and professes truth to us. And then verse 28 God gave them up. That's the third time in this passage that it says God gave them up. So what's going on there? Well, here you go. The, the passage starts talking about God's wrath. Okay? 
God's wrath is exercised by God in both an active and a passive way. So an active, uh, an, an example of God's active wrath would be, for instance, when in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and attacked the northern kingdom because that was the judgment on Israel at the time. Uh, God's active wrath is, is, is uh, executed when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 586 B.C. and destroys Jerusalem and carries all the Jews in Jerusalem off into exile in Babylon. That's God's active wrath. This passage is an example of God's passive wrath. God gave them up. God gave them over. God looks at people who are doing this over and over and over, even though he continues to hound them and say, here's what truth is, you're acting in foolishness, and we keep pushing back and pushing back, saying, not interested, not interested. At some point, God will say, I'm going to give you what you want. My hands are off. And now, what happens is you will have to pay the due penalty for your own error in the consequences of living that way. There are consequences to our error that have nothing to do with God other than him going, have it your way. That's his passive wrath. So his wrath is both active and passive. This is an example of God's passive wrath. And then verse 32, let me just reread that. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's exactly where we are today. Paul says, this is what's going to happen. And he was right. It's never enough. It's never enough for those who turn from God to be content with just being left alone. Eventually, they will demand that we also worship the way they worship. As the church, we present the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we pray that the Holy Spirit will do his work to open the eyes of people. Culture, ironically, does exactly the opposite. Culture does what it accuses the church of doing. Culture forces us to believe, and they demand that we acquiesce. That's the world we live in today. And I'm not whining. I'm just trying to prepare us. Just trying to prepare us. We are going to be living in a, in a form of exile, not like the Babylonian exile, but we will be living in a form of exile. And the good news is that God does his best work when his people are in ex exile. Culture has tried to convince us that if we acquire and possess all that we desire, no matter what it is, that we will achieve happiness, utopa, utopia, and nirvana. The truth is, our desires for consumption have never been ultimately met by acquisition and possession. It's never happened. And honestly, I think that's why there's so much anger in the world today. The, world pro the world's promises don't deliver. And so people get frustrated and angry that what they thought would fulfill them doesn't fulfill them. But then the problem, the pathology, is that we're convinced that just a little bit more will then fulfill us. If I just had $10 million, I'd be fulfilled. I get $10 million. I still got issues. $20 million will do it. And by the way, that's true of everything else. Sex power, status, whatever it is. More is the mantra of the culture. We need to remember that Jesus is the one who did it all. And that is why we're going to stay on track and be rooted in the gospel, in God's word, his spirit, and his people. Redemption Arcadia will teach the Bible 
and we'll have a high view of the body. And it's our prayer and our hope that you'll come along with us and do the same. Now, I was asked if I would share just two of the books that might be most helpful for people to try to get a better understanding of all of this that I've read in the last 18 months that have helped me. There's several, but there, there are two, and I've already mentioned cynical theories. I think you should read that. But here, here are the other two, and there should be a slide of them up there. Uh, it should be a book that you're familiar with now, because I keep pushing it. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, that's one of them. If you read that one, you don't have to read Charles Taylor, and you'll be very thankful you don't have to read Charles Taylor. Um, so, you, uh, so that's important. And then Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body uh, is the other one that I would recommend to help you with this. So let's pray, and we'll head into our time of reflection and response. Our gracious and holy God, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the filling of your Holy Spirit. And we just pray that we would welcome your Holy Spirit who would guide us into truth and guide us into wisdom. I pray for that. We thank you for your word and its truth and your word, uh, your word that unapologetically points us to your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he's done for us. And I pray that we would be people not only who follow your son, but also be people of your word, who would cherish your word and love your word, be instructed and even confronted by your word. I pray that as well. Help us to be a faith community that desires to seek after your will, submit ourselves to that, and love others. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have our time of response and reflection now. Um, if our communion servers would please come forward. Next week we start, and the following week we finish the um, Rich Toward God series. We're going to do it in two weeks, and then we start Isaiah on February 5th. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's having dinner with his friends, and at one point, he takes the bread, he gives thanks, and then he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they had supped, he picked up the cup filled with wine. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which has been poured out for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And we need to remember that what Christ was foreshadowing was him going to the cross, breaking his body, shedding his blood, and then being raised from the tomb three days later so that you and I could have victory over Satan, sin, and death. That's what he does for us and gives us eternal life through his resurrection. And so we celebrate that through communion, through taking the elements, through this sacrament. And so as you come, uh, come reverently, it is a sacrament, but come in thanksgiving and celebration that Jesus has done this uh, for us. Come down the center aisle head over to one of the two stations and then head back to your seat. Had given up his life 
the darkest day in history There on a cross they made for sinners For every curse his blood atoned One final breath and it was finished But not the end we could have known For the earth began to shake And the veil was torn What sacrifice was made As the heavens roared All hail King
out the wonder of life and as you speak a hundred billion galaxies are born in the vapor of your breath the planet form if the stars were made to worship so will I I can see your heart in everything you've made every burning star is signal fire of grace if creation sings your praises so will I
to worship so will I If the mountains bow in reverence so will I If the oceans roar your greatness so will I For if everything exists to lift you high so will I heart through all of my failure and pain. On a hill you created, a light of the world, abandoned in darkness to die. And as you speak, So I can find it If you left the grave behind you So will I I can see your heart In everything you've done Every part designed In a work of art called If you gladly chose Surrender so I can see your heart A billion different ways Every precious one A child you died to save If you gave your life To love them so high Like you would again a hundred billion times But what measure could amount to your desire You're the one who never leaves the one behind Amen. Thank you for being with us here today. Uh, for the men, we encourage you to join us tomorrow morning, 6.30 a.m., right in this spot here for our men's Bible study, starting off with Ecclesiastes. And for all of us, uh, let me read this benediction out of Ephesians chapter 4. May you be equipped for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the statter of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.